you kind of get this idea that you can never really aim to be that person. Well, it's the same in any profession. I'm not saying ELT is the same as British government, but any given profession, to feel that you can get as high as anybody can get, you have to see somebody representing you. Hello and welcome to ELT WTF. This week, WTF stands for Who Talks at Conferences, which might be a bit of a stretch. We'll talk to Fiona Machlin, a teacher, teacher trainer and author based in Oxford. Fiona is one of the organisers of EVE, or Equal Voices in ELT, an organisation that recognises ELT conferences that achieve parity in terms of gender balance and native non-native speaker balance in their plenary lineup. As a bit of background to the episode, I first spoke to Fiona earlier this year while organising XITLT, a conference I'm co-chair of that was one of the first conferences to be offered a Platinum EVE Award. This interview took place in a riverside pub in the countryside near Oxford, so you might hear some birdsong, passing narrowboats, pub conversation and even a light aircraft. Enjoy the episode. I first heard of you because of your work with the yeah. EVE organisations. What is, what is EVE and how did that get started? Well, EVE is, I'd say, my new baby, but there's two of us who <laughs> brought EVE to life. Sue Leather, who's based in Vancouver, Canada, and I. EVE stands for Equal Voices in ELT. Well, the, the main intention behind it is to support conference organisers or events organisers who manage to achieve parity or near parity in their plenary lineups mainly okay. or featured speakers which I think might have yeah. been you that gave me that term well I think um, the yeah, plenary speakers can be used differently in different exactly places, plenaries so. or keynote not so much keynote no plenary or panels or yeah anybody like leading a panel it's the featured speakers yeah, so, yeah. okay and it's parity or near parity because it depends on obviously on if it's um, odd number or even number and it's parity in gender but also in native language. So whether it's English native language speakers, such as you, me, versus um, people whose native language is not English, because there tends to be an inclination towards so-called native speakers. No particular logic to no, it. No, there but, isn't, because... Um... But they do still, if you look at more traditional lineups or typical programs from, say, 10 years ago, they it tends to be dominated by the native speakers and we don't think that should be the case. We're not sort of militant and we don't go out telling people that they should try to achieve parity. What we do is recognise it when they have achieved it. So we don't chase events organisers. They contact us and say, this is the lineup for my conference. Uh, does it qualify? We look at it and we go, yeah, here you go. You don't piss it it. Yeah. <laughs> at the moment, we have three badges, I suppose you could call them. We call them Eves. We have the purple one, which is the gender one. We have the green one, which is the L1, L2 speaker one. And we have what we call the platinum one, which is where both yeah. are achieved. Yeah, what, what made you think this was a, kind of a necessary, a necessary thing to create? Well, 2017 particularly was a bit of a year for gender issues globally. So the way before it hit Hollywood, it was bubbling away in ELT. <laughs> and there were quite a few conferences last year came in for a bit of flack from people for having all male panels or um, I don't know say eight male speakers and two female speakers or all native speakers or whatever on their panels or on their lineup sorry and I know that some conference organizers were receiving a lot of emails and messages and 
fairly heavy criticism that was causing tension obviously and I with Sue because Sue and I ended up we were helping Tessa Woodward put together a list of women plenary speakers and mentors for the fair list I don't know if you know the fair list I think we've used the fair list once right. we've got a speaker to come over from um, from Japan Right. So we were helping her kind of collate names of mentors for it. And we're sort of aware of this bubbling tension in the background between, I don't know, some publishers and some conference organisers and um, women in ELT and other groups. And we just thought that perhaps we could somehow come up with something like the fair list but international because the fair list is only for events in the UK and we spoke to Tessa about it and she really just wanted to maintain the focus of the fair list on the UK so we sat down and we talked about it for a few months and then I can't quite remember how the L1L2 thing came up but it did <laughs> and round about new year we said yeah let's do something and you know we'd <coughs> batted ideas around for a few months and Eve was born. The name actually probably was the thing that took us the longest right. to come up with. You know. okay. It's called all sorts of stuff first. Because we couldn't use the word equity in the name because uh, Marek has got his uh, Tefo Equity Advocates organisation. Yeah. And we couldn't use the word fair and we couldn't use the word list because we thought, well, if it doesn't work well, then the fair list might kind of get negative publicity by association if you see what I mean so we wanted to keep the name find a name that made it clear that we were not a direct offshoot of the fair list it hasn't gone badly at all in fact it's gone very well but you know we didn't want to risk it so. can you tell me a bit about the reception you've had how, how long has it been now it's only since February so yeah. I don't know how many months is that quick bit of maths six, six months yeah. yes <laughs> It's been very successful, actually. It's been far more successful and far more quickly than we ever expected. There was a bit of, um, not controversy exactly, but we were getting a lot of messages to start with about the terminology we were using, like native and non-native or L1, L2 or whatever. And we consulted with various people like Bruno Andrade in Brazil, Marek, uh, Susan Holden, who's publisher of uh, Peter Medge's book, on the non-native speaker teacher. I can't think who else. Various people. Uh, and we just asked their opinion on the terminology. And so in the end, I think the web page says something like highly proficient yes. L1, L2 speakers, which is a bit long and clunky. But the idea being that not all L1 speakers of English are particularly proficient. So it's a case of, you know, anybody is as likely to be proficient in our profession, whether you're an L1 or L2. So yes, that's why that's been put on there. And we don't like the native, non-native thing. I mean, personally, I don't like it because when I lived in Spain, although I was called a native speaker, by the virtue of living in Spain, if you see what I mean, being English or English speaking in Spain, I'm non-native. I don't know, I think it's a very odd yeah, term. Yeah, the term is it's difficult because it's not really a better no. term. No, I mean, it's silly. I mean, I'm from Glasgow originally, you know, it's like, you know, and you're from Plymouth. Do, yeah. do we actually speak the same English? I mean, we might do now because we probably both speak this hybrid-y... Well, yeah, that's true, but just English, speaking but... to, like, travelling abroad, I've met so many more yeah. Americans and Canadians and Australians and sometimes you have these weird communicative breakdowns. I know, it's Englishes, isn't it, yeah. really? And it's on a continuum, so, you know, this whole concept of native and non-native is a bit weird. So I've been teaching for 30 years now, and 
But when I started, just having Glasgow on my CV was a bit of an issue. And, and until, you know, the 90s, probably the late 90s, I remember applying for a job in 96 or so. And, you know, my CV saying place of birth, Glasgow, I remember on the phone, because it was a phone interview, the guy questioning, you know, my place of birth and my capacity to communicate in English. <laughs> like, so, yeah, that's how we got rid of this native, non-native as a term and to put it L1 and L2. In a second, we'll discuss a prominent conference speaker who speaks English as a first language, but whose name might sound like one belonging to a non-native speaker. We've bleeped out their name. Because a lot of the, the bias, shall we say, comes from the name. You know, when you see the name on a proposal, or you see somebody's name on the front of a book, Yes. You're already forming a judgment on on who they are and, you know, whether they speak English or not. So if you're, I don't know, for example, you know, if you see her name, then you sort of got, you may, if you're reading a program, think, oh, oh, you know, she's not native speaker or whatever. And that could be, and that's just totally wrong, because if you've actually spoken to, you know, yeah. it's like... <laughs> Anybody who speaks better English would be hard to find. Yes. You know, what I mean? you know it's, it's anybody more native speaker. It's just ridiculous to judge people on their names. My name itself, I get judged as being, taken for being Italian, German, and all sorts on my surname. And, you know, this is it. What's in the name? It's ridiculous. But that's why we've stuck with gender and um, L1, L2, because they are what people guess at from looking at a name. Because we have had people suggesting we should take in things like sexuality or race or whatever but you know how can you tell from a conference proposal what color somebody's skin is yeah, or that's true, sexuality yeah. so we you you couldn't reasonably put those things on a call for papers you know has there been any other criticism because i know sometimes anything like this to do with kind of feminism or whatever there can be like a backlash has there been much other criticism or has people been fairly um positive? well yeah you're right i mean inevitably there's going to be some people wondering what's behind it or what's under it or what we're out to gain from it or feminism and all that yeah we had a bit of that but not too much because we're not chasing anybody people come to us you know we're yeah. not like waving any banners or telling people what to do and how to do it we're just saying no you do it the way you want to do it and then if if you think your event qualifies for an eve let us know yeah we're not judging anybody or anything we're just going yeah you meet the quality you know you meet the criteria here you go <laughs> here's your badge so we haven't had too much flack on that front we have had a bit on the what do you gain from it what do sue and i get out of it you know we've had people saying are we making money from it or somebody suggesting that we had adverts on our website which we don't yeah. what are you hoping to get out of it I ask you personally now nothing really okay. certainly there's no money coming from it <laughs> <laughs> quite time consuming but I don't think either of us considered that any kind of gain from it we just felt that there was you know people were looking for something and the, the time seemed right people I mean looking for something in the sense of looking for something like the fair list but more internationally and some people who were achieving parity looking for some kind of recognition and we just thought well you know, nobody else seems to be doing it. Let's be the ones to do it. But there's no nothing more behind it yeah. than that. Okay. Certainly nothing sinister. No, but this. Why do you think it's difficult for conferences to meet this uh, these parity? Or do you think it's difficult for conferences? I think it can be, yes. And there's all sorts of reasons. And sometimes it just depends on which country you're in as to what the reasons are. One is, is parity always desirable? Well, only when you've got suitable speakers of both genders or both 
language origins for your event. You know, if you're talking about, I don't know, if your event is on English for the aeronautical and aviation industries, and everybody you can find happens to be male, then there's no point in just throwing in specialists on something else because they happen to be female, you know. So so that's one issue, um, you know, who's available for, not who's available in terms of who has free time, but who's available, who's realistically there in your sector. There's also a tendency for publishers to send or to sponsor, rather than, it depends on the publisher as well, but rather than perhaps the speaker that you might want for your conference, publishers obviously will tend to be keener to send the authors of the book that they're trying to sell at the moment. Right. Um, and if you look at catalogues, once you move away from the primary and secondary sectors, you tend to be moving into the male zone. And there's far more should we say native speaker male writers depending on the publisher on the fronts of books than women or non-native yeah um, but again I mean that's a global statement for me a bit of a generalisation it's not true of all publishers but there is a tendency yeah so you could end up as a conference organiser having eight men and two women because the publishers obviously are not going to coordinate between them <laughs> they're, yeah. they're all going to send the person right. that they're trying to promote and all eight it could be a man you know so at that point, unless you're really experienced as a conference organiser and really quite willing to stick your head on the line, are you going to contact half of the publishers and say, sorry, we don't want these people, we want a woman. Sorry, we don't want these people, we want somebody who's non-English speaking from birth. You know, how much of a risk are you going to take? Yeah, I think sometimes it can be a, uh, a bit of a self-creating problem as well, right? Because... As a, as a conference organiser, I often look and say, oh, who have other conferences had? Exactly, yeah. No, this is it. So you get, oh, this person, I saw this person there, they were good, I'm going to have that one. At this point, it started to rain, so we went inside the pub and continued our conversation there. No, there are other issues like, for example, publishers, uh, publishers or schools or whatever it is, any sponsors, you know, they may have a particular speaker that they want to send because, you know, for marketing issues, they may have just brought out a book and therefore they want to send this specific person, which may well be male, particularly if it's not primary or secondary, because a lot of, if you look at the front of books, there is still a tendency to have L1 speaker men on the front of adult courses, business English courses, etc. It's not, you know, total, it's not 100%, but there is a tendency still. So, you know, it's feasible that you have, I don't know, six publishers all wanting to send a male speaker. And then it just depends on the committee, the organisers, and their willingness to say to, you know, the sponsors, actually we want, or actually we want an L2 speaker, please. Some conference organisers will do that, some won't. Particularly somebody who's maybe just taken on the reins, this happens. People who've never organised an event before, they've got a lot to learn in the first year. In the good sense, you know, they've, they've taken on a big job. Organising a conference is really tricky, it's hard, it's got all kinds of ramifications. So you can't think of everything, particularly your first time doing it. So, you know, if you get a nice bunch of names, we say, and you get, I'm just going to say some names here, but imagine, you know, you get offered Scott Thornbury and Jeremy Harmer and Alan Maley and uh, Lindsay Clanfield, and you go, yay, I've got some really good speakers. Yeah. You may not even notice that they're all male and yeah. <laughs> white and whatever I mean when somebody start, or when you start receiving all those emails going oh, then you'd notice but maybe initially not so 
there is that. You know, you've got to be tolerant of conference organisers. You can't just pile in and say, oh, you got it wrong. Yeah, and a lot of the time conference organisers are doing a tough job for not much thanks. Well, this is it. It's voluntary. You're doing it in your free time. Um, You're probably doing it at, no, it's 11 o'clock at night like we do Eve, you know. So it's really difficult to, to see everything. You can. That's why I say, particularly people who are new to conference organising. If you've been doing it a few years and you've probably learned and you've kind of got a checklist, but to start with, it's difficult. So you do, you've got what your focus of the conference is. You've got sponsors. You've got local availability, funding. You know, who have you got money for? You may not have any money to bring in people from far away, shall we say, in your local People may all be either all L2 or all L1 male or whatever it is, you know. So, yeah, there's all kinds of factors. And then, of course, there's the cultural one, as we're finding. Yeah. Certain regions will tend to go all male. Certain regions will tend to go all L1 speaker because they think it looks good to have international speakers on the programme. Certain regions will be far more, you know, parity will arise just because that's the way it is there. You know, in experience, Eve experience, you know, Australia seems to be, I don't know if ahead is the word, but in sense way ahead of many other countries. What kind of support do you think there is and what are you offering, what can you offer to conference organisers who are interested in working towards parity? We've been doing quite a bit of stuff behind the scenes. We've got the Facebook group and we've got the website and we've got the blog and we've got the eaves and they're all very visible but there's actually a lot of you know behind the scenes work, particularly Sue and and me people just contacting us saying what can we do you know i don't know i'm not going to name the specific event but there was an event recently that came in for a lot of flack and um we just offered help and advice um we had another situation with a conference organizer who was getting blocked should we say by the committee uh, and again um, because the the conference lineup was looking to be very male dominated and this conference organizer was wanting help with finding female speakers so we've also found ourselves giving advice and support in that sense and just helping people get things moving um but that's incidental that's not being deliberate that's just i guess sue and i you know she's over in canada far side of canada i'm here we're on different time zones so one or other of us is awake at any given time basically we've also been around a bit shall we say we've been in the business for quite a while we know people we so we're fairly well placed to be able to suggest speakers or strategies or just you know we've both organized conferences you know we're very much involved in the profession so yeah we're just I suppose just helping people the way we can we've had a couple of that's where the tweet chats came from because sometimes when you don't know the answer god knows nobody nobody knows the answer to everything so we've said okay well let's have a tweet chat on it and then and the people come in and it's great it's wonderful because with so many good people in our profession and people who are willing to sit at their computer for an hour and and just tweet ideas and advice to somebody they've never met you know it's great so we've just put out calls and we've had three tweet chats and we've got a few more on the horizon we've i don't know just we do what we can i mean it's, it's difficult to talk about it without yeah. sounding a bit pretentious but you know but you can sound pretentious that's okay. No, no. no, 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 no. <laughs> okay. No, well, what's no, the best no. way for someone to find out 
about future tweet chats and events and things? It's all done in our free time. There's Sue and I. There's also there are another three people who I haven't mentioned and I should have. There's Alex Popovsky, who's in Macedonia, Republic of. Um, there's Adam Simpson and there's Enric Oprea. You know, people can contact any one of us or they can tweet us or they can tweet with the, uh, what do you call it, hashtag, the Eve calendar. It's just Eve calendar hashtag and ask any questions. And we, When we've got a tweet chat coming up, uh, we tweet, obviously, about it and we tend to put it on the Facebook page. They're a little bit, not random exactly, but spontaneous in a sense because because we organise them to respond to people's needs rather than a calendar or a diary. It's when people need help with something, then we say, OK, we'll do a tweet chat on it and get you help. But yeah, I mean, following us on Twitter is one thing. So that's either using the hashtag Eve Calendar or Eve, small letters, underscore E-L-T. Um, so if a conference is like Achieve Parity, do you think there's other things they should be trying to do as well? Because I mean, from my experience running a conference, when we did the first one, mm-hmm. we had um, we did have gender parity. We didn't quite have like native, non-native speaker parity. But we realised we'd given most of our money to men, right? So even yeah. though we had... Uh, we had a good mix of speakers in terms of gender. We ended up, well, we spent a lot of money having a male speaker come over. We didn't spend yeah. much money at all. And was like, do you think there are other things people should be aiming at? Not I think so. Around. I mean, there's a, because we've got, we're going to have the annual Eves as well, which have got the really corny name so far of New Year's Eves, <laughs> which will be based on keynote and local and international. There's an issue that I've noticed, I'm not sure if Sue has, and we need to talk about this and work out how to counteract it, but there's still a thing, even of parity. People will aim for parity, or conference organisers will aim for parity, but they still think that having international, big-name, white male speakers versus local women. So they're spending, as you say, all the money on bringing the big boys over and achieving parity by then inviting, say, three local ladies. Yeah, you're equal on the the programme or whatever, but it's not the same. You know, people still notice the two or three, the the, the guys, I'm not going to name names, we know who they are, who are there. I don't know, it's just, I mean, there's nothing wrong with being a native speaker. No, no, there's not. But it's just... Yeah, it's an odd one. You need to get the parity across the field. It needs to be your L1 speakers need to be male and female. Your local people need to be male and female because, you know, by definition, you're somehow excluding the L1 speaker women, but you're also excluding the L2 speaker men. I don't know. It's it's hard. It's hard to balance it all out. I think the really, and the really, you know, the people who are really on the ball are going to spot that and try and do it anyway. But that's why I'm a bit worried that people aim for parity for parity's sake. I don't know. I don't really know the answer. But I think the more that we make the issues visible, the more we talk about it, the more we get it out there, the more we, we, I don't just mean we, Eve, I mean we in general, sort of raise awareness of this, make people think, then, you know, hopefully with time it'll change. It's not going to change in six months or even a year, but, but yeah. What effects do you think having parity can have on the conference itself, like what changes do you think people might see in a conference apart from getting an evil award? Parity, well, I think it's an obvious one in a sense. It's what if you see yourself represented at the top of the profession, if you're just starting the profession, or even if you've been in it for 10 years, but if you see yourself somehow represented at the top, then you feel you could get there one day. Whereas if all you ever see is men from Southeast England, 
for example. I'm just saying that because we're sitting in Oxford. <laughs> it's a bit like politics. You know, you look at British politics at the moment, you get the impression that to rise to the top, you have to have been educated at Oxford. You kind of get this idea that you can never really aim to be that person. Well, it's the same in any profession. I'm not saying ELT is the same as British government, but any given profession, to feel that you can get as high as anybody can get, you have to see somebody representing you. Yeah, I mean, we heard these stories after Barack Obama was elected. Uh, yeah. Was, oh, I want to be president. Well, this is it, yeah. I mean, it sounds silly, but I mean, I'm of a generation that um, when I was growing up, the BBC was pretty much all white guys. And then suddenly, newsreaders, we had, there was, you know, there was Selena Scott, there was... Anna Ford, there was, I've forgotten her name, but she did the Can Cam and Welcome and Wise. And there was Sir Trevor MacDonald. And they appeared. There was a lady as well, whose name I've forgotten. But anyway, the, these people suddenly started reading the news. And it was like the whole world had changed because you turned on the news in the evening at six o'clock or nine o'clock or whatever it was. And you suddenly saw more people represented. It was wow. I mean, it was as, probably as wow as punk music. Or the fact that when I got to be about 14 years old, there was Debbie Harry, there was Chrissy Hind, there was Annie Lennox, there was Patti Smith, there was Lena Lovett, there was Hazel O'Connor, there was this huge... Oh, there was Susie Quattro. <laughs> suddenly there was a bunch of women rock singers. And it was the same thing. It was suddenly feeling that as a girl, I could do something that wasn't be a teacher or be a secretary. And I think that... And I'm not referring to the noise in the background. <laughs> well, I am, actually. It's breaking the glass ceiling. It's suddenly seeing what you can achieve and seeing that barriers have been taken away. And I think even in our small way in ELT, it is important because we're a global profession. We're in every country. We're not just in the, I don't know, you know, the white Europeans or the North Americans or... Australia, whatever, we're in country where women do struggle harder or, you know, we're in a sector where it is harder to have your voice heard if your voice has an accent. Yeah, it's important. So what, we spoke a little bit before about publishing, but do you think there are other areas, aside from conferences, where there's similar issues um, and what do you think can be done about those? Yeah, publishing's an odd one because if you actually look at publishing, most publishers are women, um, most editors are women. There are men, but I imagine if you happen to be working for OUP or CUP as a man, you're sort of working in a, a room full of women, maybe there's three or four of you. I don't know, I mean, I don't know the proportion, but I do know as a writer, there's a lot of women in publishing. But there's a lot of men in writing. So I had a chat, I've had a chat with two publishers actually recently with regard to Eve and possibly getting some kind of I don't know about Eve for publishers but some it's something that we're looking at for the future put it that way some way of thinking about getting women and L2 speakers more visible on the front of book covers and stuff and in publishing catalogues in articles as well you know writing articles but it's not so easy because for time reasons we still live in a world where women and childcare and all these things or even just what you dedicate your life to. I think women are slightly less likely to put themselves forward. But yeah, so publishing's one area. Management, I don't know. It's not just DLT, is it? It's, it's life. It's the world we live in. Look at school owners, 
I think it's still predominantly men that own schools or or husband and wife teams. I suspect, I don't know, I don't have any statistics, but I suspect there are fewer schools purely owned by women. What else do we do? <laughs> <laughs> Teacher training. I don't know what the stats are on teacher training. I suspect it's about 50-50. Yeah. Teacher training in the Salta Delta world, I mean. Not so much roaming trainers like me. I don't think you can change a profession without changing the world in some sense. Yeah, that's And that's true. just not yeah. going to happen, is it? You know, we can, we can be as right on as we want to be, but there's certain things that we can't really change. But we can try, we can do little bit by bit. You asked me before, you know, what do we get from it? We don't get anything in terms of money or prestige or whatever the heck. I don't think we want it. I don't think either of us want it. I don't think neither, when I say either, I mean Sue and I. We're not that kind of person. I don't think either of us are out to stick medals on our chests. But it is nice to feel that you've been useful in a way. I think everybody wants to feel useful somehow. So, and that kind of thing's been really good. I don't think Sue and I ever thought we would say before, I don't think we ever thought we were going to change the world. We're not. We're just trying to acknowledge other people who are trying to change their world. And sometimes it's nice just to have somebody say thank you for that. And we are effectively saying thank you, I suppose by issuing three colours of eaves, you know. Thanks so much to Fiona for coming on the show. If you want to find out more about Eve, you can find a link in the show notes or just Google Equal Voices and ELT. You can find more info about the awards and find their blogs and a calendar of events that have been awarded Eves. If you enjoyed the show, please consider subscribing and leaving a review. I'll be back on Friday next week talking to Scott Thornbury about conversation. See you then. Whisk and soda and rock and roll. 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 Wh